Hey, this is Jeff Johnston. Welcome to the Living Undeterred podcast. Um, Mr. Tim Ryan, uh, I'm not really sure where to put you, what box to fit you in. You're one of the most passionate advocates I've met on this five-year mental health journey I've been uh, unfortunately thrown into, but I'm leaning into it, as they say. But uh, you're an amazing person, man. You've got a, a storied history, um, got a documentary. You've got a tremendous amount of reach in the advocacy and the recovery uh, world. So welcome to the show. I don't know what the heck you and I are going to talk about, but I will guarantee you this will be this will be a passionate, exciting show. So people need to buckle up and strap down and get ready for uh, our conversation. But welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Jeff, man. It's 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 great to be here. And, you know, I'm kind of an enigma. I, I do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But, uh, you know, I just want to help people. I just want to help. I, I don't want anybody to say I need help and they can't get it. Yeah. And you. You know, when, when I started really advocating for um, for mental health in general, but when I started working specifically in recovery and, and addiction, you know, you, you seem to kept popping up everywhere. I was on social media. I would see this Tim Ryan. I think I saw a video of you uh, um, water skiing uh, barefoot. Um, yep. <laughs> and I know you you keep doing the metal, heavy metal sig- sign. So I'm a big metal head myself. Um, I've seen what Maiden and Priest both twice in the last two years. So I'm grew up a metal metal head. So I knew there was a lot of common uh, aspects of life you and I embrace, but then there's also some commonalities. We've both uh, buried a child. So let's start there. Um, that's probably the main thing that drug me into your story uh, and how I just admire your strength and your courage. And um, I want to navigate a little bit into your documentary, but first let's talk about your son and, and um, what happened. And, and I'm sure this has a lot to do with, uh, why and who you are. Wow. You, uh, <laughs> I went right to it. I just got off a 12 step base meeting and I was sharing about Nick, my son. Uh, yeah, shit. You know, Nick, uh, Nick came into my life. I was adopted. Uh, my older brother, all of us were my little brother and sister are native American. So when I met, uh, Shannon at work, you know, we dated five months. I got her pregnant and, you know, I dragged her to the courthouse and I married her, but she had this three-year-old son, deadbeat dad. And, and I took Nick in and, and married her very quickly and adopted Nick and, um, Nick's my son. And, uh, the problem was I treated Nick as a friend, you know, I, I wasn't Mm. a father, my best friend. And, you know, he, uh, at six years old, I, I bought him a long board and, uh, he got plugged by, uh, a city of Naperville van skateboarding, broke his femur in half, had to start first grade in a wheelchair. And as soon as he is out of that, you know, dad, can we build a quarter pipe in the backyard? So skateboarding was his life, hmm. but I was also the father that was in active addiction, alcoholism, ultimately heroin the last 12 years. And I was the dad that, that thought it was okay to let Nick and his buddies smoke mm-hmm. weed at the house and drink because I'd rather have them doing it there than elsewhere. Right. Um, you now I was, okay, you guys want to trip on acid, do it here. Long story short, uh, December 16th of 2010, I overdosed while I drive and hit two cars, almost killed four people. Thank God they're okay. I fought my case for 21 months. Mm-hmm. In the midst of fighting that case, I was really dope sick one day and everyone knows I'm a heroin addict and Nick came in the bathroom. He was 17. He said, what's up pops? I said, what do you think you idiot? I'm dope sick. He said, not anymore, dad. Today's your lucky day. My son threw two bags of heroin on the counter and I got out of the top. Yeah. I I got out of the top, ordered them immediately, 
my sick was off and I went next room and I said, Nick, what in the F are you doing? And he said, don't worry, dad, I'm just selling a little bit. I said, you need to shut this down immediately. This isn't weed. This is heroin. And you know what this has done to me? And my son looked right at me and he said, well, dad, you're a successful drug addict. And I said, why would you say that? And he believed it. He said, well, dad, we've got a nice house. You got an office in the Wrigley building. You make a good living because even in addiction at that time, I was making a a substantial half million dollars a year. I own my own recruiting firm. But anyhow, uh, I thought he shot it down. And three months later, I caught him doing heroin. Wow. So heroin together. And unless you're an active addiction or an addict or an alcoholic, you will never understand it. But that's how I bonded. Uh, we, we did drug runs. We got high together. And, uh, you know, my wheels were off. I was going to court every month. I knew I was going to prison. I was delaying it. And then October 30th of 2012, I sentenced to seven years in prison. I did 13 and a half months in prison. My worst fear was Nick was going to die from an overdose. He had been to treat, uh, OD'd two more times, treatment twice while I was in prison. I was in a therapeutic community. I plugged into recovery, went through the steps. My wife divorced me, lost her home. I displaced my wife and four kids. So they all had to go move in with uh, my former wife's mother, my mother, former mother-in-law. And when I got out of prison, I had a little townhouse. And I can remember my daughter, Abby, calling me. She is 12. And she said, Dad, you need to help Nick. Um, I was doing laundry and I found heroin on the washing machine. Hmm. So I called my mother-in-law immediately. And I said, you need to kick Nick out immediately. I said, if Abby would have brought her laundry down and, and had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich right. and it would have killed her. My mother-in-law, bless her soul, you know, thought that she could rescue and save Nick. Long story short, he went to treatment one more time. I was 19 months sober. We met and uh, he's like, dad, you know, I'm sober. You're sober. We could speak in schools. I said, great, do it. 30 days out of treatment. He is back in jail. uh, trying to buy, sell fake pills. Did 45 days, got out and, uh, his mother picked him up, fed him, and said, we're done. You're not coming to my house. You're not coming to dad's. And him and his girlfriend were getting an apartment. And five days out of jail, I called him and I said, Nick, please come to my house and get some Narcan. And he said, Dad, I'm not on that anymore. I promise you, I'm going to meetings. I'm doing the right thing. And I believed him. Mm-hmm. Two days later, August 1st of 2014, uh, Shannon, my former wife, called me at 6 in the morning and said, get out of bed. I'll be at your house in 10 minutes to pick you up. Nick overdosed again. We shot to Hinsdale Hospital, uh, ran into the emergency room. Tim and Shannon Ryan here to see our son, Nick. He, he had overdosed, and 30 seconds later, the chaplain walked out. I knew my son was dead instantly. And I'll ask people, what was my next thought? Most people say you want to get high. No, my next thought was I'm going to be at a meeting that night. My first call was to my, my sponsor. Mm. And then to my family and uh, had to deal with that. And I went to a meeting that night, never looked back. I never wanted to be a recovery advocate. I never wanted to do any of this. Right. I got to prison. I, I went into the recruiting space. Then I set up a nonprofit and some support groups, stumbled into working into treatment. And then my son died. And unfortunately, in Nick's passing, uh, he opened the doors for, for what I do today. And I'm on the front page of this and this. And I started digging deeper and... Uh, I thought I had to save everyone and help everyone. Mm-hmm. So I started speaking all over in the nonprofit, helping indigent people and working in treatment and wrote a book and a documentary on A&E and a guest of the State of the Union and yada, 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 yada. Um, yeah, and since Nick's passed away, I've been I've attended 150 funerals. I quit going. Um, I started taking on other people's pain and traumas, and uh, it almost destroyed me, Jeff. 
because, you know, at the peak of my game, I'm doing 250 speaking events. I'm putting 20, 30 people into treatment. I'm yeah. helping three, 400 people right. a month. I'm profit. And I had no balance. I had no filter. I had no self-care. I was in another relationship. I had another child. Thank God for Mackenzie. I have a beautiful seven-year-old daughter that's never seen her father drink or use drugs. God called one home, blessed mm-hmm. me with another. This is where I carry my son's ashes today in this necklace. Yeah, I remember and, you showing me that. You know, ride or die, I live God's will, next will to the best of my ability. And, uh, you know, my former wife, two weeks after Nick passed away, we sat down and had lunch. And, and Shannon looked at me and she said, Tim, I truly believe God put you in my life and Nick's life for a reason. And had you go through all your struggles and had Nick go through all his for Nick to pass on to set the stage for what you're going to do next. She said, the past 30-some years of your addiction have been your training ground. And unfortunately, Nick's a casualty of that, and your work's not done. And go help people, and I've never looked back. It's the mindset of do things happen to you or do things happen for you? And, you know, it doesn't reveal itself clearly many times initially. It takes, you know, it took me 14 months uh, to, to figure that out, but I want to go back two things. I want to talk about self-care in a little bit, uh, but the main thing I want to go back to your story a little bit, and I'm going to ask you the dumbest question that I, that anyone can ask you, and I don't really should frame it the dumbest question, but let's say the most naive question. Smartest, dumbest guy in the room. Buddy. The, the most naive question. Would there have been anything you would have done differently? Well, you know, that's... Yeah, I would have stayed sober. Actually. Well, okay. Other other than the obvious, like, oh, I wouldn't have done drugs or stayed sober. But in regards to maybe paying more attention on certain things that he was going through, um, is well, there any? You know, when I got out of prison, Nick was my focus. Yes, I okay. was building my and doing this, but all Nick was my focus was getting my son help and, and seeing him in, in that treatment center for the six time. Here, to answer your question, yes, Jeff, here's what I would have done different because at that time, um, I didn't understand and I didn't have the knowledge of what I have of the substance abuse mental health field. Now, I always had really good health care insurance. It was just something right. you got for, I have five kids, you know, now. Um, so I, I just put him in the local treatment center. He went there five times. He went to one program five times and another program once. If I would have known that I could have put my son on a plane and set him out of state for 90 days to six months to a full continuum of care program, I would have done it in a minute. Get him away from the scene of the crime because Nick could go to the treatment center. All the kids in treatment, he said, dad, all I did was meet more drug dealers. I got out more drug dealers. So yeah, that's one thing I absolutely would have done differently. So what advice do you have for someone who is either a on this train wreck that they can see, you know, deaths, deaths, an option on the table, or they've went through what you and I went through and, and thousands of other families in regards to self-care. What, what are some of the, you know, you and I get approached or contacted by people that have just lost children. What's the first thing you tell somebody that um, either is, is in the process of losing someone or has just lost someone. What, what are some words of wisdom you could, you could help them get through to the next day? I, I'm real straight with them. I don't candy coat this or anything. Obviously, my condolences, everything. But I explained to them, as I explained to you, Jeff, two things are going to happen when you lose a child, a, a husband, a spouse, a wife, whatever. You're going to go into a grief you will never get out of because mm-hmm. uh, want to blame everybody else and not take a look at, at the reality 
or you're going to take that negative and turn it into a positive as I've done, as you've done, you know, my wife, Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Jimenez, who's a uh, supermodel and an actress and uh, coming up on 17 years sober, she ran sober house and celebrity rehab and all that. You know, she started this whole movement. Jen and I, three years ago, were in Altoona, Pennsylvania. We had 10 speaking events and we were doing uh, the overdose awareness event on August 31st. And Jen walked in and, and Jen reads feels energy. And she said, this is, this is awful because you had all these parents whose children had passed away mm-hmm. two years, four years, six years ago, but they're with their five or eight or 12 year old kid just crying and crying. Mm-hmm. And oh, your kid's been dead six years. I understand it, but you're still living in the day that person died. Mm-hmm. And what are you doing to all your other children and, and living through this? So don't live through the day they died. And, 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 and I looked at it as his work here was done. God called him home. And, and, and that's it. You know, I, I, I keep it pretty simple, but, you know, I, I try to give people books to read or, or support them, but some people will, they just want to blame. They want to blame. They want everybody arrested. You know, when my son died, <clears throat> I had to deal with, you know, telling his mom, yes, it's him and, and all that stuff. And then the police took me in the back room and they took me down this hall and there was two boys and a girl. And they said, there they are. And I said, who's that? They couldn't see me. It was smoked glass. They said, that's your son's girlfriend and his two friends he was with. We're going to charge him with drug-induced homicide. And I said, no, you're not. And he said, what are you talking about? What do you want to do? I said, I want to get them all into treatment. Mm-hmm. I said, that could be me getting high with my son. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't blame them. I blame the disease of addiction. But what I found out after the fact, and these are more things I use to educate when my wife and I speak, is... They knew my son snorted two bags of heroin. He never shot it. So let's get this misconception. He snorted two bags and this kid, Gary, gave him a bar of Xanax and he ate it. Half hour, you mix a benzodiazepine with an opiate, it's going to suppress your system. You're going to overdose. And they knew he was overdosing and they panicked. They didn't call 911. They went in the basement, did more drugs, forgot about him, came up an hour later and he was dead. So it wasn't fentanyl. Well, it was... There was a little bit, but I mean, this was yeah, 2015. When I when I got sober in 2012, I can remember shooting heroin, and it was purple color. That was fentanyl. Oh, okay. But it was on then. But nevertheless, what that experience taught me was educating school students about the Good Samaritan Law. Because in Illinois, if these kids would have right. called nine, the police would have come, paramedics, saved Nick, taken the drugs, left. Nobody gets arrested. But on the flip side, there's a law in Illinois called drug-induced homicide to where if you provide drugs and someone ODs and dies, you can be charged with their murder. Mm, yeah. So, the sword, so people aren't going to call 911. Of course because, they're not. Well, so... Um, That's frustrating. Yeah. How many states have this Good Samaritan well, law? And how a, a bunch of them, but I'll tell you, the Will County State's Attorney, Jim Glasgow, we were at an event that Heroes, Heroin Epidemic Relief Organization, put on. And someone, Glasgow's a, 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 he wants to lock everybody up. He wants to throw every drug addict in prison. He's, he, he's an ig- ignorant Naramus. And, and I tell it to his I met him and I, I wanted to work with the man and he wouldn't give me the time of day. But uh, he, he wants to lock everybody up. But at one of these events, I had posed that question to him. I said, so hold on, you have the Good Samaritan Law. So if, if I'm partying and, and Bobby ODs 
and I call 911 and you rescue him, nobody's going to get in trouble. He's like, right. I said, what if he dies? Well, now I'm going to charge your ass, ass with drug-induced homicide. Yeah. I said, hold on. So it, it doesn't work. Right. So people, and, and I think that's a big issue here, Jeff, is because they're, I think they're going after the wrong people. We need to go after the cartels and all this, but... You know, I, I get why people sell drugs in this. And, you know, I, I went to go buy those drugs. Yeah. Um, so why do I want to charge a drug dealer? We're, we're, we're just looking to blame everyone. You know, it is what it is. You know, you, you buy, you take something illegal, a fake pill, you die. Well, why aren't we educating the youth about this? You know, out here in Los Angeles, yeah. we're talking, week, Jeff, t- 10 minutes from my house. I, I live right on the border of Beverly Hills in, uh, in Los Angeles. Seven kids OD'd. Uh, a 15-year-old girl died. I heard that. So we're L.A. superintendent and this and that, and I can't get a meeting with the man. And and the news came and interviewed us and said, well, now they're getting Narcan in the schools. I said, that's great. Narcan is a tool to reverse an opiate overdose. And Why aren't we educating the youth so they never have to be right. put in that situation to have Narcan administered? Right. Because we're educating and well, Narcan's going to, we're going to put a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. That's what we've been doing for the past 50 years. And that's what we do with most things in society that are symptom-based um, instead of causation-based. And, you know, I always say we should have the, we should intervene before the intervention. And unfortunately, though, you know, just look at, look at our health. I mean, look, look at how many adults think the average elderly person's on four or five different meds, but even prior to being elderly, how many people are overweight? How many people eat unhealthy? And then they have to take, you know, statins for cholesterol or they have to take something else for diabetes. And it's like, again, going back to prior to having these problems is where we need to be focusing on. And I think there's an opportunity there, I think, really for advocates and for people that are trying to really move the move the needle down the road is, A, do we just build more rehab facilities, focus on, on recovery, focus on um, more diagnosis or which is, or drug cartels and big pharma, which is supply side, or do we say, I think we're better served not giving up on all those because we obviously can't and we, and we shouldn't, we have advocates that are always fight the fentanyl's a mass uh, weapon of mass destruction argument. And that's fine. We need everybody out there doing their part, but, but we seem to be just forgetting about the kids. We seem to be, well, there's a bunch of kids that are going to be fine. And that's great. And the ones that don't, we'll build facilities. We'll, we'll diagnose them. We'll give them meds. And I'm like, same thing you and I have agreed with since the first day I met you was that model doesn't work. It has never worked. And it's not going to take this 800 Americans that are dying a day from overdose, suicide, and alcohol to go to 500. It's going to go to, it's going to go to a thousand. And it's going to blow. Right. It's getting. And it has, it has. Bottom line, when I started doing this stuff, I think 89 people a day were dying from, from. Wow. Crisis. Roof. I mean. We're in a pandemic within a pandemic. It's not getting any worse. We just had uh, a million pounds, uh, I mean, a million fentanyl pills in Arizona. You know, 100,000 here. (laughs) People need to wake the hell up because we're not going to stop this. We're never going to end overdose. So stop saying it. We are never going to end overdoses. Stop saying it. I'm sick and tired of these people saying words matter, but they want to put statements out there that are completely untrue educate about overdose. We need real solutions for these children because the kids today are different than when we grew up, Jeff. They're going technology. They can 
YouTube and type in porn, heroin, anything they want, they can search. And they're looking for instant gratification yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. You find a kid that'll go out and swing a hammer at 15 years old for a solid eight hours a day. They're far and few between. Everybody wants instant gratification and it's, it's taken it aback. You know, I... When I finally got sober, they I've been diagnosed everything. I've been on Suboxone. I've been on methadone. I did it all. I got sober in a prison cell with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, November 1st, I'll have 10 years clean and sober. I don't take any mental health meds. All I take is vitamins. I, me too. And water. I don't drink yep. soda pop. I, I take care of myself. My only vice is I still vape, and I'm leaning down on that. <laughs> you can't, but, be, uh, from, can't be perfect, from, Tim. Come on, you got to have a few vices. <laughs> but, you know, it's it, these kids, fuck, they need connection and purpose. Yeah. When my wife, yep. well, Jeff, a lot of the kids, you got to understand, they're not struggling, but they're going home to a home that's a broken Amen. environment. Absolutely, Moms, absolutely. Moms an addict this, they're having to raise the other kids. No child should be an adult at 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. But a lot of people, even today, adults can't sit still in their own skin. And and we've we've got an obesity problem. Yep. We use ninety percent of the prescription pain pills worldwide are used in the United States of America. We got a pill yeah. for everyone solution. It's it's getting back down to causes and conditions. You know, you know? The, the I was talking to a group of kids and trying to think of how I could relate mental health because you say mental health to a you know twelve year old and they don't really understand. Um, and that's one thing as advocates we need to find you know transitional words we can use to um, instead of saying therapist maybe say you know counselor because they deal with school counselors not school therapists although now I think the therapist is a little more common. But I was thinking about ways we can we can speak their language, you know, and how you, how you relate to kids. So I was thinking about mental health and I think you just hit the nail on the head is that all you have to do is tell a kid that there's a train coming, you know, like they're 12, mm -hmm. 13, 14, 15, there's a train coming. It's coming at you a thousand miles an hour. And that train is called mental health and how you can know this train is coming. Just watch your neighbors, watch, you know, at, at graduation parties, watch adults, watch your parents at night, Watch your, watch your friends talk about their parents, their divorces, their, you know, dad's drinking too much on Saturday to football games. It's like, you can see the problems coming. All your friends will talking about their problems they have at home. That's the mental health train that's coming. So as advocates, we need to have like metaphors and analogies where we can paint these really complicated ideas in kids and put it in simple terms so they can start to understand and give them the autonomous behavior skills where they can make their, they can self-assess. They can make decisions and create that sense of ownership instead of saying, well, I got it under control. I just binge drink, um, you know, that, that dependent nature. Uh, the reality is that, that most even adults are dependent. They're not autonomous. You know, you and I, you go to more meetings than I do. I don't, I don't go to meetings for myself. Uh, never have for me. Just, I chose not to drink and I really haven't overthought it much more than that. But I know when you're at these meetings, they talk a lot about, um, you know, how you can identify with your thoughts and things like that, or not identify with your thoughts. So in regards to things like self-care, which is something I wanted to talk about a little bit ago, that's where I'm kind of going with this statement. What do you do for your daily self-care? Um, I write about it in my book. I talk about it in the podcast, but what are some skills or habits you would, you would get into people to talk to them about, uh, ways they can, um, have their own, uh, their own self-care. 
Well, it's you can talk to someone about self-care, but if they have no idea on how to put a roadmap together for it, they're dead in the water. You know, and I'll, I'll share something here. You know, about a year ago, I'd never had thoughts of wanting to kill myself. I, I was wanting to kill myself. I was wanting to eat a bullet. Um, you know, I'd moved to L.A., COVID hit. Jenna and I had it for 10 weeks. Then we're long haul. Then we had mold. So there's a lot of variables involved. So I went and got a new sponsor. And for me, my, my sponsor is 33 years sober. Um, he's never missed a, a 12-step meeting. He plays in a huge band. He travels international and he, wherever he is, Australia, Africa, he goes to meetings. But when I met with Johnny, <clears throat> sat me down. He said, when's the last time you went through the steps? So I said, it's been a few years. He said, well, we're going through the steps again. Um you're going to do a gratitude list every day. You're going to share it with 20 or 30 men. You're going to have at least two commitments at meetings. You're going to sponsor at least two to three people. Uh, you'll be at my house on Thursday night. You'll be at this meeting in person Saturday morning. And if you don't want to do that, I wish you the best of luck. Hmm. That's what I do. My morning, I'm usually up at 5, 530. Um, I read the 24-hour-a-day book. I read Daily Reflections. I read Jesus Calling. I do a gratitude list. I share it out. I meditate for 20 minutes in the morning. Yep. I meditate for 20 minutes in the afternoon. I do at least one 12-step base meeting a day. I talk to 10 to 15 men in recovery. I only do men's SAG meetings. I do not go to co-ed meetings because I am a man that is married. I have no business going to co-ed meetings because I'm a man and I'm going to hijack women there the whole time. Men need to get sober with men, not women. Um, the only co-ed meeting I will go to is if I'm with my wife or I'm asked to speak because you have to realize, you know, what road do you want to take? Because in, in recovery, you got people that are predators. You got people that are just trying to hook up with girls. You got people yeah. that want to deal. Yeah. So hang out with people that are 10, 20, 30, 40 years sober. You're, Those are, that's my inner circle. You, you are know? the, you are the first advocate because i've only been doing this five years my mental health mission five years ago i was a capitalist investment guy and now it's yep. mental health you were the first person i think could have been a year or two ago where you and i talked at first on the phone and and you kind of warned me because i was all gung-ho about being this big you know big advocate and you're like dude i'm telling you many many people in this in this industry are i'll be nice you said shysters or some something to that effect that you know they're they're, uh, they're in it for the wrong reasons. And so when I did my tour this summer, I ran into some amazing people, but I also saw some, I saw some, uh, you know, I'll be careful, but I saw some, I wouldn't say organizations, but I saw some, um, some entities, some people that I just kind of felt that they were it really in it for authentic reasons, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's tough, Jeff. I it's a big business, I man. I mean, it's a, it's a multi-billion, the recovery in the rehab space is a multi-billion dollar. Jeff, it's, I didn't know anything. About, I came out of the tech space. You know, I was a basically a headhunter. I grew management consulting firms and high-frequency trading firms. All the firms you made a shitload of money at, I ran their technology. But uh, when I got into this industry, I can remember in 2015, there was some big recovery rally in Portsmouth, Ohio. So we drove out there, and there's probably 40 recovery advocates. Two, of, two or three of us are left. Everyone else has relapsed. Um, 
A, if you're going to be a recovery advocate and preach, I wonder how many of these people truly work a recovery program. Because there's a difference for someone, an alcoholic and a drug addict like me, to be clean or to be sober. Clean, you're just, you're not using, but you have no program. You have no foundation. You're not doing meetings. You're not helping. How many of these people actually really sponsor people? How many of these people go to meetings and are part of the solution? Because a lot of people are out here for their own egos, to toot their own horn, look at me, look at what we're doing, we're so great, but is it really helping people? A lot of these recovery advocates out there will not take a a phone call to help an indigent person. You know, that's what our foundation, we dissolved it last year just because it ran its course and we did it for seven, eight years, but I would spend sometimes five hours on the phone, cold calling, searching places to find a bed in, in bullshit Georgia for some lady that has no insurance. None of these people do that. So don't don't believe their bullshit. They say they want to help them, but they don't do it. That's what really bothers me. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible to be in recovery but not be abstinent from alcohol? No. Shit, no. So, so is it, can people drink uh, alcohol responsibly and not have a destructive life if, if one day in the past they used to have it be destructive? Not that I know of. And if they do, they probably never had a problem. They might have went through a binge cycle. But no, once for me, if I pick up Jeff and I've done this before, because I was just curious on that statement, because to me, to me, I think that's one of the issues, I think, with people who 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 do drink a little bit. And and they certainly there's no downside to giving up alcohol. Zero. The only the only downside is drinking. So there's no downside. So. I think this this line in the sand with so many advocates where it's like you either you either drink or you don't. But there's I know many people that are very responsible. They're drinking uh, and it's not a problem. So but they still could be an alcoholic, though. You can be an alcoholic and have one drink a day. If I get off at five o'clock, I get home at five thirty. I open the door. I've got that martini with two olives. And if anything throws me off getting that drink at five thirty with two olives, and I get upset, chances are you got an issue. If you obsess and compulse over it, you got an issue. You but don't if nothing to- negative comes from it, I mean, even if you, and I'm not, I'm just trying to think outside the box here because when I talk to people, it seems to me it's like it's either 12 step or, or nothing, you know, or it's, or it's this no. or nothing. And it's like, I, I do no. know, I do know many people that, that can believe it or not have a glass of wine and, and they don't, things don't change. They, they just get tired and they go to bed and they get up early and go back to work. And it's rare, but I just may, may, maybe, you know maybe, what, and for me, that number is so small. I don't care. Hey, right, if you, right. so, you want to drink, I don't care what they do, right. but don't call don't tell me you're in recovery. If you're smoking weed, but you don't shoot heroin anymore, you're not in recovery. You're still smoking weed. Weed is a mind altering substance. So stop this bullshit. I'm California sober. There is no such thing. You're either in recovery or you're not. You're either in relapse mode or you're not. There's many facets. There's there's the 12 steps. There's refuge recovery, smart recovery, celebrate recovery. There's some people that just see a therapist and and they go gym and work out. But if you take two people that have not drank or used drugs for 10 years and one person has lived a recovery program and one hasn't, believe me, the one that hasn't is going to be irritable and discontent because the whole journey is internal. It's not external. And you know, the word recovery too, I think as a advocate need to be, we need to be, and I can include this myself because I never had the drug problem, but I was a compulsive gambler. So when I say I'm in recovery, the, the assumption is 
I'm recovery from drugs or alcohol, but you can, I had an alcohol, I was an alcoholic, but I never did drugs, but whatever it is. Yeah, sure. So recovery could be a, 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 a word that could specifically apply to your situation. I think, again, when I hear the word recovery by 90% of the people out there, the implication is drugs and alcohol. You rarely hear about the gambling addictions out there and other types of things. You could be in recovery from a sex addiction. You could be in recovery from well, no, food addiction. It depends on who you roll with. Cause I'll meet people and say, Hey, I'm Tim. I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. I'm Tim. I'm, I'm a recovering yeah. gambler. I'm a recovering porn addict. Um, but then there's a lot of people that are so embarrassed to say I'm a recovering right. alcoholic and right. they hide. So, you know what? I don't get caught up in it. I used to, I don't care. Yeah. I don't it's semantics care. at the end of the day. And if you're, if you're unraveling your life, then whatever your addiction is, is the most important thing to you. Exactly. Right. You know, and bottom line is Jeff, this is the hardest thing right here for anyone to do. I need help. Right. Hardest. Right. Put your hand. Say I need help. Whether right. it's alcohol or drugs, it's just emotions. It's guidance on finance. It's, I just need somebody to talk to. Right, I have to ask you this question. Cause I know you and I have talked about this. Uh, I am at the learning stage of this whole thing. I'm, I'm in the learning curve of, of mental health, substance use, distress, and, uh, addiction. Let's talk about harm reduction. And you live right in the heart of, uh, of <laughs> where some of the biggest issues are. I live in Iowa, man. We are our heads, our heads in the sand here. I think we only have, um, we only have four recovery centers, first of all, in the state of Iowa, um, right. which is amazing. And, and, uh, harm reduction is just something that most people out here aren't comfortable with, but it seems like it, there's a storm coming with the acceptance of it. And I'm still forming my opinions, not being a drug addict ever in my life. I can't really relate to the withdrawals of drugs and all that. So I understand the methadone and the MATs and all this stuff that, that, that seem to be certain parts of the country, there are success. I mean, you could go anywhere and find the worst of the worst examples. You could find the best of the best examples of any topic that you want to go to. What's your personal opinion on a, just the idea of using say methadone to treat uh, an addiction to an opioid or a medically assisted treatment, safe syringe places. And then um, if your, if your thoughts of it are different, what would be your solution? I guess. An easy question, Tim. And I'm giving you an easy one here. So in the early 2000s, when I started doing heroin, uh, my dealer was uh, a big wig with Maniac Latin Disciple Street Gang. Um, his wife was an addict. He was. So we would go to the Chicago Recovery Alliance truck and get boxes of clean needles and cookers. And at the time, I was afraid of getting AIDS and stuff. So, or, But we could go into Walgreens and buy them across the counter. But this whole, I was one of the first people on Suboxone. I did methadone. Um, I got really angry on it. I tried to quit. I said about 75, 80 milligrams, and I got sicker than a dog. And I called my dealer, and he said, what do I do? He said, you got to go back to heroin. So I went back shooting heroin. <laughs> when I got on Suboxone in 2002, I had to go see a psychiatrist at the Wrigley Building in Chicago, and he had charged me $500 cash, and I'd get my seven pills for the week. So wow. right there, it's all about the friggin' money. Yeah, yeah. So places um there was a program and i'll call them out i don't care called soft landings and they started popping up all over the country and they're mat and basically what they were was intensive outpatient and you had to be on suboxone or methadone i actually had a client i had sent to florida <clears throat> heroin addict 32 years old did 30 days in treatment came back and went to this program for iop 
did 90 days in IOP. So now he's four months totally clean and sober, going to meetings, doing IOP. And the place says, you need to go on methadone or Suboxone. We're afraid you're going to relapse. And he said, relapse? I'm four months sober. Hmm. Well, you can know part of our program. That's bullshit. Right. The, he did them on Suboxone or methadone so they could keep billing the insurance to sure. keep them in the ILP for another two years. Right. That's a fact. They don't tell you how difficult it is to get off methadone, how difficult it is to get off Suboxone. In Illinois, no one will detox you off less than 25. You have to be at 25 milligrams or less to get detox. I've had people on 200 milligrams of methadone that were in a detox for six months six months in a medical detox. If we're going to do medicated assisted treatment or therapy, you are supposed to be seeing a psychiatrist, a therapist, and working a recovery program and not using any other mind-altering substances. Hmm. About 5% of the programs work that way. Most of it is, hell, you can get online and get your Suboxone online, telehealth, here, talk to someone, you got a 30-day supply. It's putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. You know, mm. I don't want to hear it because I kicked a five-gram heroin habit and drank an elite, a handle of vodka a day. And I shit and puked myself for two weeks straight in that prison cell. I didn't sleep for a month, not one wink. And I plugged into recovery, and I'm coming up on 10 years. Don't tell me you need all. I needed that pain. I needed to go through it because I'll never forget it. The problem is... Once people are coming out of treatment and left to their own devices, and well, like even in Illinois, they the people on state insurance, they were putting them on Suboxone in treatment, giving them a, a week-long script or a 30-day script when they get out. Well, they didn't tell them that their insurance didn't pay for oh, it. Yeah. Now, people go to Walgreens to get their prescription and they need $350. They don't have $350. Now they're going to get dope sick and they're going back and getting a bag of dope. On the flip side, how many people have 215 hour cash to go see a psychiatrist or 450 right. hours? Because most good therapists and good psychiatrists are no longer taking insurance. It's only cash pay. Hmm. So, you know, the system's broken. I mean, and, and you look at these safe injections, look at Portland and stuff. These, yeah. Look at how I was there shit. on the tour. I, I, I had to ask the, I had to ask the concierge at the hotel, is it safe to walk back from dinner at the two blocks down? And I shouldn't have to ask that question, you know? Well, I, I shouldn't have to, and believe me, I'm all for supporting the homeless in this, but where yeah. we live here, we're in, we're in a beautiful historic 1919 building and I can walk through the back of the neighbor's. And six weeks ago, my wife and I are in bed Sunday night, and I hear a huge break. I run out my front door, and as I'm open it, something hits my door. And there's a homeless lady there throwing shovels at my front door, broke the neighbor's table. Um, so I went out and confronted her, and what am I going to do? Right. Knock out some <clears throat> My right. neighbor started change, chasing her with the damn samurai sword because they're sick. This lady did $10,000 worth of damage to 30 homes. And the police did nothing. They can't do it. What are we going to do? I said, put her on a psych hold. Get her some help. Yeah, absolutely. So people get frustrated with it. Um, opening safe injection sites, I will never, ever in a million years support. It's the biggest fallacy of crap I've ever seen. You are going to take everyone that's going to a safe injection site, 90% are indigent or homeless that are doing crimes, selling their bodies, to get drugs. So you're going to have a 22 year old female or male 
come to your safe injection site so they can shoot up fentanyl safely and not die, but then they can walk out the door to sell their body and be raped and molested or whatever for another 10 times to get a hundred bucks or whatever they need to get their fix on for the day to come back to shoot up safely. What about all the trauma those people are experiencing when they're walking out of these programs? Mm. Oh, well, we'll have people talk to them. Really? Because then when people want help and they're indigent and they've got a $300 a day fentanyl habit, oh, it's a six-week wait to get a bed. So if somebody, that- if somebody says, well, but if it works on one or two out of 10 people and that one or two is your son or daughter, it's worth it. Yet the collateral uh, damage of the ones that get worse- it's- more crime, it's going to bring more. You open it. You open the methadone, the methadone clinic in Chicago on Wall Street. I used to go to every day. There'd be thirty drug dealers standing outside of there selling Xanax and heroin and whatever. You think you're going to open a safe injection site and it's not going to bring more crime and addiction? Of course it is. Open more state-funded or peer-driven programs to where people can yeah. get a true detox and get off everything and then get the skills and and therapy and all this good stuff. But, you know, I went to the greatest treatment program in the world because I was in treatment 13 and a half months. It was called the Illinois Department of Corrections and the program was run by Westcare. And I had 13 and a half months to read 400 books, to do the 12 steps, to do meetings, to do all. I wrote two business plans. Greatest thing that ever happened to me. We need more therapeutic communities within the prison system because I'm sick of this crap that people should be getting hall passes. No, some people need to go to prison. Some people yeah. need to be sat down for a year or two. Well, it's my life. With the prison system, again, my son was in prison as well, and he was dead within two months when he got out. But it seems like yep. there was a there was this. Uh, you did your time here. You know, congratulations. Maybe you improved your life, and you're on the street. And good luck. It seems well, like. See, so- so let me stop. You yeah, because because that, that's exactly what happened to my son. When he got out of prison, there wasn't a bridge. That's a majority of the prison systems. Now, when I in Illinois, there's 28 prisons. There was two that had therapeutic treatment programs, Southwestern and Sheridan. And by the grace of God, I got into Sheridan. But when you go to prison, they process you. You got to see the task agent, the mm-hmm. shrink, the doctor. All these people, but you got to be able to smart enough to tell them I'm a drug addict. I'm struggling. Please get me into Sheridan. I got into Sheridan. But four months prior to getting released, you go do your 120. So all the guys that are getting out in the next three to four months, you go do your 120, and they've got vendors for housing, for jobs, for food, for anything. Let me ask you, what's the 120 for the average person? Well, that's 120 days before you're getting out. Okay, now in my in my son's case, he got out early. So he didn't have any 120 preparation. Well, he got out, he got out like in three weeks. He had a two-year sentence. And he got out really early. So we didn't have any prep time. Well, when you, you have to have at least a certain amount of time to go to a prison like Sheridan, they're not going to let okay. you come. You have to do at least, you have to do the program, which is a minimum of nine months. So if, okay. if you're under months, you so can't for those go with there. One or two year sentences or less, then right. that, or even, that probably wouldn't okay. be an option. Like my Sally big perk. Um, he was at another prison for five years and then, requested to go to Sheridan and came to Sheridan for his last three years. So there, program, there is hope out there that prisons are starting yeah. to see the light. Uh, but here's, here's the, point. the point is we had a prison that had all the resources for every inmate that wanted them. So okay. when you walked out of prison, you could get into a sober home paid for by the Illinois Department of Corrections for 90 days. 
They had jobs. They had task agents. They were there to help you. It's up to the individual to take the help now. Right. If we were in, that, in all the prisons, we'd be in a much better situation. Um, Kane County Sheriff Ron Hainan in Kane County, Illinois, when Ron was getting elected four years ago, we went and met with him and, and he put in drug pods. This man was trying to build a treatment center within the, the jail mm. that any could use. But their recidivism rate has plummeted because mm. they're in MAT into the treatment center with a with a an outpatient treatment provider. So when the guys get out of the county jail, they're hooked up with the job. They're hooked up with free treatment mm-hmm. for ninety. If we start doing things like that, we're going to be able to help more people, knock down the recidivism rate, and get more people into recovery. But the one thing I will say is, everybody wants to bash the twelve steps. Most people that bash the 12 steps have never worked a 12 step based program or they'll say, oh, it didn't. I I went to do an event in Chicago and they wanted me to be the keynote. And they said, you can't talk about the 12 steps. I said, sorry, I can't do the event. And they said, well, the 12 steps killed our son. I said, how is that? Well, it didn't work. And I said, did your son ever get a sponsor? Did he work the steps? Well, no, he went to meetings. I said, well, of course it didn't work. Going to meet is fellowshipping. Working the steps with another man who has went through the steps is how the program works. That's the solution. But people need to quit bashing it. I tell people, go through the 12 steps. Try Celebrate Recovery. Try Refuge Recovery. Try Smart Recovery. Get a therapist and work out and take whatever works for you and put it in your repertoire. But for me, 12 steps to the corner, I'll never Yeah, if you look look hard enough, there's going to be something out there that fits you. I know, again, from... Most of us form our opinions based on the lived experiences that we had. You know, most of what you talk about is because you're passionate because it happened or didn't happen to you. I'm mm-hmm. in the same boat. I know my wife, when I tried to get her to go to the 12 steps, you know, to go to A and all that, um, as an agnostic slash atheist, um, she didn't want to have, you know, seven of the 12 steps focused on God and even higher power. Because if you don't believe in that stuff, then higher power is just another word of saying God. And so, so here, hold on, hold on. Let me finish. Let me finish. So, so I think there's a lot of people and I do applaud, uh, the 12 steps for taking God out and, and putting in higher power, but there's still a, there's still an assumption, higher power, something from the heavens. And there's a lot of people out there that don't believe in that stuff. And I think, I think we're missing an opportunity. If we want to really help everybody with addiction and substance use distress, maybe the 12 steps could be, could be redone. Um, no. no. No, no, stop, stop right there. Let me, I'm going to, I'm going to hit you between the eyes and I'm going to educate you right now. There's a chapter in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous called We Agnostics. Yeah, I read it. I don't have, have you ever read the first hundred and Yeah, I, I read it. John Schinholzer had, had me read it. People don't understand. They've, and I tell parents, like when I used to run our support groups, I started it as a heroin anonymous meeting. Two weeks later, a kid comes in and says, Hey, Mr. Ryan, I take Xanax. Can I come? I said, sure. The next week, a mom walks in with her daughter and she says, I hear you operate differently. Can I sit in on your group? And I said, wow, why don't I have the parents come with the person struggling? And that's what we did. But I would tell you would have I'd be running the parents group and you'd have 80 of us parents in there. And I'd have a mom going, well, I don't know if my son's doing step four and he's just hanging out there. And I'd say, ma'am, can you tell me what step four is? Uh, what do you mean? I said, well, you're saying your son's not doing step four. What is step four? Mm-hmm. I said, you can't answer me. I said, you're more worried about what your son's doing and you know nothing about this. Mm-hmm. So I went and bought all the parents' big books and I said, please read them. Right. And the one 
did understood it. And I said, look, go to Al-Anon. Al-Anon is for you. You know, quit trying to do your kids recovery right. or your husband or wife's. And no, we don't want to redo this book because this book has helped more people than any program in the world, more right. than any treatment programs, more than any church. More people are sober to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous than any program out there. And if people want to knock me on that, look at Hazelton Treatment Center. Mm -hmm. Hazelton Center was started to sober up alcoholic priests. If the priests couldn't sober, but you know what, instead of let's redo it, why don't we just accept where it is and do some things need to be changed? Yeah. Um, I can't think of the British actor who wrote the book, the 12 FU steps or something, but it's a brilliant book. Yeah. Um, you know, but people do what do what works for them. I don't have time to, if people don't want to do it, I don't care. Mm-hmm. My time, let me get you guided, directed. Let me offer you the best options out there. And it's up to you. I, I'm not responsible for your recovery. You are. Um, but I will take every tool to my ability so I'm the most well-rounded machine internally and spiritually for myself and my wife and my children, because that's all that really matters. And the key point is tool, because, you know, spirituality uh, for somebody is completely different for somebody else. Um, and, Absolutely. you know, spirituality to someone could be a connection with a celestial being or it could be a connection to a tree uh, or, yep. or reincarnation. Um, so but again, I'm just saying from and I'm agnostic myself, so I'm asking the question kind of an open minded that wouldn't deter me from going to AA meetings um, at all because I don't know what God is. Right. God, I was raised Catholic. Yeah. Um, I I hated God. I I was mad at God because I, my God was taught to be a punishing God. Yeah. To me, God, it could be G O D a group of drunks. Yeah. G a gifted desperation. Right. I call my higher power Fred. I don't know what God is. Yeah, and this really I, isn't about God. It's about your own inner self-worth, your uh, inner confidence. And I guess where I was going with this, Tim, is that, I mean, if we're as advocates looking at really trying to help everybody um, to be inclusive in all different types of, of belief structures, uh, I'm more concerned with people's behavior than I am their belief personally. Um, someone could believe in Gozar the Barbarian, but if they're an ass, then they're still an ass. Or someone could be believing in nothing, and if they're an ass, they're still an ass. So as as an advocate, and again, on the learning curve here, I want to be very uh, open-minded to any way to add tools to that to that tool uh, chest or arrows to the quiver. So I'm all for AA. I'm all for 12 steps. Uh, and like you said, if, if it isn't right for somebody, then what are the other options out there? And Instead of trying to put a square peg in a round hole, it's like, okay, fine. There's a set of sub subset of people like my wife that simply are not going to go to AA because of God. And that's a, I would say kind of a ridiculous reason, but she didn't go and she's dead. So had there been something out there, maybe that wasn't anything to do with that, but still had the same core tenets of, of, uh, the 12 steps. Is that something that should be available for people? It probably is to be honest with you. I just haven't seen it yet. Um, and I met quite a few stops on our tour that were very spiritual. They were actually held in churches. Um, I think people need a good therapist and take their guidance and direction. Regardless of their belief structure in in God, a therapist can be a good, a good tool. Um, no question. You need mentors, you need therapists. And I don't care if people, if they are truly an alcoholic or drug addict, if they do 12 steps or they do this, but I can tell you. I, I can pick out the recovery advocates that work a program and are full of shit because their their actions speak for themselves. Yeah. You know, 
Um, and, and for the people, you know, that's a problem with any 12 step based program. They think it's a God based program. It's not, you so know, it talks, <laughs> talks about recovering and recovered. I, well, I'm help me figure out where I am, Tim, because I'm recovery homeless then because I don't go, I don't do meetings. I, and I was a compulsive gambler for 30 years, uh, which to me wow. was, was my drug of choice. It wasn't heroin. It was casinos, but I quit cold Turkey. And, um, so I don't know where I stand on that stuff because I can't put me in a box, you know? So what I tell you, yeah, boy, you're missing out on a lot of good stuff because I've got a buddy of mine that quit. Well, the meetings are great. I, I've been to some to support friends. Not the meetings. Oh. Have you ever worked? Well, have you ever worked the twelve steps with a sponsor? I do two hours of self care a day, and and that's my that's. that's it, I didn't ask you. That. Have you ever went through the twelve steps with the sponsor? No, I have not. Okay, so what I would suggest, in G, if you still do GA right. gambling, do it because you're you're short changing yourself. That's what I tell people. Because doing the 12 steps, people people want to bash stuff. You know, one, two, and three is the emergency. Step four, taking a searching and fearless moral inventory of myself mm-hmm. and look my resentments and my fears and my sexual inventory and getting honest and then sitting down and sharing that, all my secrets with another man, and then working on being humble and working on my true shortcomings. I've got one of the greatest books in the world here ever written. And I'll guarantee you 90% of the people that say they're in recovery have never read it. It's called Drop the Rock. Yeah, you gave it to me the other day. I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to read it. Yeah. It's on on sepsic most powerful book uh the 12 and 12 is a very powerful book but then step eight I, i'm making a list of all people i need to make amends to and that's not saying sorry some of my amends are living amends doing the next right thing a majority were financial amends yeah and pay money back for the dirt i did and then 10 personal inventory and when i'm wrong admit it and then step 11 is what it's about sought through prayer and meditation mm-hmm. to improve Conscious contact with God as we understand Him. Yeah, I meditate every pray, day. I, I told you as well. Yep. And the power to carry that out. But the question is sought through prayer and meditation. I can't tell you how many people that are in long term recovery don't know how to meditate. Yeah, well, there's a between prayer and meditation. So these are the things I'm working on constantly. And yeah. then, you know, continue to carry this message. It was the best that with my my therapist, who also happens to be thirty five years sober, and my sponsor, thirty three. I got the greatest gift in the world, and damn near free. Twelve step program is free. My sponsor's guidance and direction is free. You know, when I'm at his house every Thursday night, we read a, a, a paragraph out of a book right. on relationships. A lot of the things we're talking about at my home group is our relationships and how I can be a better husband and a spouse and listen to my partner. And it's not about, and the more I give back to other people, the more I get in return. Oh yeah. No question. I don't care about pretty. It's here. I think what I'm, what I'm realizing as I go down this journey that of self-reflection, you know, self, self evolution, I like to call it. It's a chapter in my book called the evolution of self is that, is that, grief and trauma and, um, all these issues we have, there's a spectrum. I mean, some people are tortured from something to happen when they're young. Some people are tortured with just driving by a a grocery store and seeing alcohol, but some people aren't. And it's like, you know, I think you got to figure out where you are in the spectrum and then go at those weaknesses or voids that you have and fill them. 
So, so you're absolutely right, Jeff. Yeah. Get- and that's where not everything works for everybody equally. And it's like for, for, for one person who's say, and it could be some, something redundant as a Republican, you may have certain ways to deal with your therapy and your, your daily coping mechanisms because of your political beliefs, uh, let alone your, you know, religious or your whatever. But, you know, I mean, we talk about, um, you know, you talk about uh, dieting, for example, there's so many parallels in, in making good choices with dieting, but you know, I, I don't have a dietitian. you know, I, I don't read books on dieting. I just know at this point in my life, I'm not going to eat French fries. I'm not going to go to McDonald's, you know? And so I kind of, that mindset to me, I'm not that smart. I think I told you that when we first met to me, it's been like, I just don't want to drink. And so I could probably go and get a lot of fellowship, a lot of really good things out of these meetings. But for me, it's just, it hasn't been that I don't torture myself and I was an alcoholic since eighth grade. So I think, I think there's, there's people like me out there and there's people that I know people that if they don't go to two meetings a day, Tim, they're dead. And it's like, so we have to have all yeah, that on the table. We have to have I, all I this on the table. Let, let's get this straight. I don't have to go to any meetings. I and people. Do I have to? I choose, choose. to go. Absolutely. I, like I choose not I, to drink. Yeah. yeah. I want to be on my tribe. Right. And I, I quit drinking and I. Just and you're helping so many people, Tim. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that comes back at you in space. I mean, it comes back at you in exponential numbers that, you know, you're helping yourself, no question, but you know, at the end of the day, because I, you know, again, I, we're running out of time. This has been great. I love talking to you, man, but let's talk about your documentary real quick. Cause I watched it for the first time. I watched it twice and I really applaud you for, you talk about being vulnerable and people watching this are going to say, man, this guy, he's on the spectrum of intensity and and you are your whole life. You've been like this, but you had that same passion in your documentary, man. Every time I've talked to you, there is no letdown in your intensity. And I think that's what makes you successful in what you do. But let's talk about your documentary real quick, about five minutes about the motivation behind it, how people can see it and how that changed your life. And maybe some updates on some of the people that were in it, specifically the young man, uh, the young man that was in it. I was really curious how that turned out. So my documentary, I, you know, I, I came out of prison and, and, you know, Nick died and I just started doing shit and I'm on the front page of the Tribune and this, and I'm calling every politician. I just wanted to help. Right. And I had a phone call from a lady by the name of Candy Carter and Candy Carter drove out to meet me at, at a Starbucks in Naperville and they were doing, she's in, uh, in the television industry and Candy was doing a documentary on the gangs and why Caucasians are buying the drugs. Hmm. But as they're interviewing me, I had three cell phones. They don't stop ringing. And she goes, what do you do? And I tell her, and she said, we can do something on you. So anyhow, it start, we filmed the sizzle reel and their company went out of business. So I bought all the footage and everything for 400 hmm. bucks. Oh, geez. And, Tiff, <laughs> and, and, Tiff, and I'll give Tiff, I love Tiff, was the showrunner. And she said, hey, I've got a few contacts. So we hopped on a plane and flew out to California to meet CAA and all these big places. And my first meeting was with a gentleman by the name of Jason Hervey. Jason was from the TV show, The Wonder Years. And Jason's business partner was Eric Bischoff, who uh, was on World Wrestling Entertainment and started WWC Wrestling. He was the, the hype man. So I met with Jason and I loved him and I signed right on the spot. I said, I'm not going to meet anyone else. And couple weeks later, Jason and I flew out with Tiff to New York City to meet A&E. First meeting, first network we go to. We walk in, we we sit with the 
senior vice president and show the sizzle reel. And we're in there about an hour and a half and the lady's crying. Now what's a sizzle reel? It's a, it's a three to four minute kind of plug of, of what the concept of the show is about. And you didn't have the show done at all. So the sizzle reel is just a sales pitch before they see the car, basically. Right. Raw footage we put together and, we left the meeting. We went downstairs, and Jason goes, "What did you think?" And to me, I I don't care. I'm like, "Ah, oh, that was cool." I, I'm not caring about doing this. And and uh, the next day, A and E called and said, "Take them off the market." We signed a deal. Um, we filmed a pilot. We were originally going to series. It was going to be a series, like yeah. Dog the Bounty. And a week prior, A and E changed and flipped it to a documentary, ran it, and that was it. But it was a day in the life of what I do. And, and there's a scene in there with Becky, the prostitute. Right. I remember. Who, who I had got Becky a month prior, maybe. Got her from Rockford, brought her to Illinois, put her in a back door into Good Samaritan Hospital detox while she took off. So her mom's calling me. So I went to the one hotel. one, And I see the, the pimp driving her. And I'm chasing him. I'm calling my cop buddies. And, I remember that scene. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, came up to the car and was going to. I was scared for you, man. I thought the guy was going to shoot you guys. When I'm when I go to get someone, I don't worry about that. I'm going to get the person. Right. Now you made and, that pretty clear. And, and and you know what? I got Becky. And right. uh right. Becky, uh man, that girl. How's she doing? When we went back to my office and her calling her mother and saying I'm going to treatment. Mm-hmm. And my foundation paid for her and mo- her and her mom to, to drive across the country, paid for all their hotels. We paid for Becky to get into a long-term program. And Becky is four and a half years clean and sober mm. today and work, working as a counselor in a drug treatment program. And dude, if you don't show up in that parking lot, she's probably dead. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she's probably my biggest success story. But, you know, then I've got Nick Gore. Yeah. Um, who, who Nick, uh, when I got out of prison, Nick was speaking. And uh, Nick showed up at my son's funeral and went to the wrong funeral home. Well, <laughs> I, opened, I opened Banyan Treatment Center in Naperville, Illinois, and I got a call from Nick, and he won't care me sharing. Uh, and he was strung out. And uh, I scouted him in, and uh, he thought he was staying 30 days. I had him stay 90 days, and then I met with him and his mom and dad. And I said, now things are changing. Now you're going to a sober home for a year. And I said, when you get out of that sober home, I'll hire you. And I hired Nick. Um, and I taught him the business development space. And, and Nick now is Midwest director for a treatment center. He has a beautiful wife. He has two children. He has mm. a beautiful house. Uh, Derek Haran. Derek Haran's a crazy story because. Derek was the one my- in the documentary, right? Okay. My drivers in the documentary. So Derek, when my son died, I went to an AA meeting at Yellow Brick Church that night. And the next night we were there for another meeting and Derek shows up and he's just, we were, I was doing the 7 a.m. The 7, it was a week later. I was doing the 7 p.m. AA meeting and there's a nine o'clock NA. So we're out smoking and Derek comes up and he's like, Hey, you guys going to the NA meeting? I said, nah, I'm AA. You go do that. And a route, I was joking, and he said, hey, did you hear about that kid, Nick Ryan, that died last week? Oh, now, not, I were dying at the time, and I said, yeah, why? Did you know him? And he said, Nick's girlfriend was my best friend. I grew up with her. He said, did you know Nick? Huh. And I said, she did. I said, Nick was my son. Holy cow. Derek and I became fast and furious friends, and 
he relapsed and I, I sent him to Florida and I did the same thing with Derek. I said, you get a year sober, I'll hire you. And Derek got a year sober and he was my driver and I taught him business development. And Derek is now married with a beautiful house in the suburbs of Illinois as a Midwest director for another treatment center with a wife and child. So those are the things that make me happy that I was able to help people to get on the road to recovery and they're flourishing now. That's what it's all about. All right. That's so what- does this take a toll on you? It has. It did a lot, Jeff, until I met Jennifer. Mm-hmm. When Nick died, I was in another relationship. I, I, I got her pregnant, had a child. It was horrific. This lady was in and out. I had her in six psych wards, treatment centers. I'd come home from Florida. My house would be cleaned out. My bank accounts drained. And it was, it was chaotic, and, and we ended up getting divorced and all this. But when I met my wife, Jennifer, I was wanting to partner to speak, to do interventions. When I flew to Florida to meet her, I fell in love. Four hours later, I told her, I'm going to marry you and spend the rest of my life with you. And uh, she said, well, maybe you should finish your divorce. I said, I'll be done in five weeks, and maybe you want to sell your oats. I said, I don't roll that way. And five weeks later, I was divorced. Four weeks, four months later, Jen and I were married, and we got mar- uh, engaged, and we got married December 31st of 2019 here in Beverly Hills. Great. But the thing is, when Jen met me, um, I had three phones and this, and she taught me balance. She taught me boundaries. My wife taught me how to say no. My wife taught me what health self-care is. Without Jennifer, I probably would have put a bullet in my mouth. Mm-hmm. And is is my saving grace. She is she is my world. I could not imagine my life without her because for the first time of my life, Jeff, I got married for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. I got because I was in love. Um, and I got the greatest life in the world. And it's not materialistic shit. It's just, I got a wife that loves me. We communicate. We we run businesses together. We help. We travel. And her and my kids and my in-laws and my mom and dad and my brothers. And that's my world, man. I, I love my life. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love the men in my life. I love people like you that have come into my life that are making a difference. And we're brought together through pain, through mm-hmm. a lot of freaking pain, brother. Mm-hmm. And out on the other side and and you'll share what you share and I'll share what I share and our missions combine and if people take it we hope for the best and if they don't we keep trudging forward because more are gonna pop on and grab and I can't help everyone right. most important thing for me is self-care right because without my self-care and balance Jeff I'm not good to anybody me too man I I, I tell you what that's a that was a fast hour, brother. I, I uh, always enjoy speaking with you. Um, I, I just feel re-energized. I feel like um, I learned something from everybody that I speak with. Uh, and uh, that's the beauty of sharing stories. And that's why I got into podcasting two years ago is to find people out there that are in the trenches that are, you know, uh, walking the talk. And uh, um, unfortunately, like you said earlier, there's too many people that are in this self-health, uh, life coach, motivational speaker area it's really about them. And, uh, I can see your story isn't about you. Uh, it's, it's a weave narrative, you know, every time you talk, I can see Seth, you know, I can, I can see my wife, you know, I can see, I can see, you know, a lot of what I went through, through you, you're sharing your story. And when you and I combine share our stories, like people watching this today, they already know my story. They've been following Mm -hmm. me for years. It's like, now they see someone else. They're like, man, there's another person out there that has a lot of Jeff similar traits, especially with attention deficit and being intense, but may have a different uh, viewpoint on certain things. And that's the beauty of 
of sharing. And uh, I, I applaud you for what you do, man. I, I, I've learned something. I've benefited a little bit today from our conversation. And what would you tell someone right now as we end the show? Uh, what's one or two nuggets of wisdom you could give for someone that's really, really at their wits end with whether it's heroin or alcohol or infidelity or casinos, or they're just ready to give up? What do you tell somebody? Pick up the phone and call me. Don't and you're you not afraid phone? of that because you give out your cell phone all the time. <laughs> number is 312-502-8671. My email is tim at dopetohope.com. My website is dopetohope.com. I am on Twitter, A Man of Recovery. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. You can find me anywhere. We don't do this alone. We do it together. Just put up your hand and ask for help. Tell on yourself. If you're struggling, if you're having self-harm, eating issues, drinking, drugs, just life in general, mental health, ask for help. And we'll come in and, and guide and direct you. That's it. You know, the crazy thing about this industry, though, Jeff, is people think you should do everything for free. You know, mm. when I ran my profit, we, we, I never took a salary. We gave away all the money. Um, but I can remember a guy called me and he said, hey, uh, do you testify as an expert witness? I said, yes, I do. And he said, I need you to come to Indiana. My buddy is going looking at seven years for burglary, but he, he was a drug addict. So, you know, I need you to come testify. And I said, OK, well, my fees, $10,000 per day plus expenses and airfare travel. And he said, you're going to charge me for this? Right. I said, you want me to hop on a plane from Los Angeles, fly to Indianapolis, rent a car, come spend two or three days on my own dollar and do this and not get paid for it? Well, yeah. See, people think you right. should do this. Well, you should speak for free. No, I shouldn't. Right. I have a, I have things I want in life. I have kids. Right. I need to pay my bills too. But everyone thinks you should do this for free. Right. So I think why a lot of people are trying to be life coaches in this, but they don't have the training. They don't have the understanding, right. and dealing with people's oh. lives here and families and loved ones, and you want to give them the right opportunities and tools to better themselves. You know, yeah, I mean, I'm no therapist. I'm no doctor. I'll connect you, but the work's up to you. Time is such a sense of urgency, such a commodity. It's like, you know, for people in recovery and rehab, I mean, minutes, minutes could be where they need answers. They don't need to be on a waiting list for a week or wait for some speaker to come fly into their town in two weeks. They, they need help right this moment. And that's again, what I applaud you for what you do, you and Jennifer and, and, uh, the, the people you help. And, um, you know, I'm happy our paths crossed. I know you and I have a lot of work uh, together uh, down the road. Um, and again, I just, uh, I admire your strength, man. I mean, you, you have a co very compelling story. And I think one thing I want people to remember as they watch or listen to this podcast is it's unhealthy to compare grief. It's unhealthy to compare stories. I can't compare to Tim's story. Tim can't compare to mine. There's parts of our stories that are very similar, um, but then there are parts of our stories that are completely different. Um, right. and anybody watching this is going to be in the same position where they're going to say, well, I can see something about Tim that makes sense, but then I don't understand. But then with Jeff, same thing, but I didn't lose my wife, you know, and, but we can't do that. I think as advocates in mental health, we need to say your story is the most important thing to your life. And if putting your cat down is just the most important thing in your life, then that's equal to me bearing a child. And it, it may seem insane to say it that way, but for people who don't have children, they can't relate to that bond. Maybe having Absolutely. a cat is the only thing. So I think as advocates, we need to be very careful how we present things, but more importantly, how people view you and me. We're not Avengers. 
We're not cyborgs. We're human beings. We cry, we laugh, we love, we have empathy. And at the end of the day, everybody watching this show has to do what's best for them. Uh, and I think, I think in sharing our stories, Tim, I think, I think we've accomplished that today. I know I feel better just talking oh, with I know, you. I know we have. And you know, Jeff, the difference is look at you, you're calm, cool. I, I'm a big loud mouth and, and I'll get in your face and I'll go head to head with, with the Congressman, the president of the United States. I don't care if I believe in it and that might rub some people the wrong way, but when you've been to 150 funerals and you've walked in on the homes I've walked in on, you'd probably operate the way I do too. And, you know, we're very successful at interventions and, you know, uh, we get to people and, and all I can do is guide and direct and, and give them the best resources to help themselves. But I won't co-sign anybody's bullshit. That's on them. Well, I, I, I appreciate the compliment you made about my demeanor, but when I'm on the other side of the mic, my inner Tim Ryan comes out, <laughs> dude. I'm I'm just like you when I'm interviewed. I'm pacing. I'm I'm like this. But as a host, I gotta I gotta like be a little bit tempered. But no, when I'm on the other side of the mic or other side of the camera, I'm 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 just like you, man. I, I I I my blood boils when I think about all the missed opportunities that I just had as a father, as a husband, and I don't torture myself with those missed opportunities. I certainly think you and I can save lives by sharing our story. So. Um, I love you like a brother, man. Really, really, really appreciate the time you took. Um, you know, you, you just, um, I don't know. There's something about the way you present, the way you, you hold yourself. And I think a lot of people are going to be moved by this, this conversation you and I had. So thanks a lot. And again, how you've already mentioned all the ways people can reach you. Um, but if someone's in dire need to really talk to you, what's the, what, what do you recommend the easiest way to reach you? Probably Instagram, Tim Ryan, dope to hope. Or uh, Twitter, uh, Man in Recovery, or just call me, uh, 844-611-HOPE, 844-611-4673, rings right to my cell phone. Oh, you want my cell phone? 312-58671. Oh, dopetohope.com. Perfect. There you go. Rock and roll. Love you, Jeff. All right, brother. Get out of here. Love you, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.